Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a beautiful Haydn symphony, one of the very first of that famous final set of 12 that he wrote for the so-called Solomon Concerts in London. Uh, Just to recount the story, Haydn, of course, spent virtually his whole adult life working for one great princely family in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Esterhazy family at their palaces in Eisenstadt and Vienna and Esterhaza, etc. And... um, Around, I think, 1790, his great prince, Prince Nicholas Esterhazy, died. Very sad. At the same time, Haydn, now uh, roughly at the age of, I guess he was 58 at that time, was suddenly a free agent. Uh, he still collected a modest pension and uh, from the prince and from the prince's heir, Prince Anton Esterhazy, but he was free. Uh, they kind of downsized the whole palace orchestra and such, and uh, so he wasn't as needed. And so he... Uh, almost immediately was accosted by this very enterprising violinist and concert promoter, Johann Peter Solomon, who had this series that he had developed in London. And uh, Solomon knew, of course, that Haydn, even though Haydn had never been to England, was a huge culture figure in England, and the English already loved and knew a great deal of Haydn's music. And so he tempted him to make a trip to Haydn to put on a series of concerts featuring his new symphonies and other works as well, which Haydn did. Very enterprising gentleman, Haydn, because back in the day, uh, 59 at that time was already a very... Uh, advanced age, and for Haydn to go on a big trip to England and spend essentially a year there uh, was kind of a a daring thing for an older gentleman to do. But he did it with great uh, delight and uh, had an absolutely wonderful time. He had such a good time that he went back a few years later, and between uh, 1794 and 95, he made a second big trip uh, to Solomon's concerts and uh, put on another set of of concerts uh, and, and premiered a whole bunch of other symphonies. So Between these two visits, uh, the final 12 Haydn symphonies were created. It's not entirely clear when exactly this symphony, number 96, uh, was written. The the actual numbers of the symphonies are not entirely chronological. This one actually probably happened a little earlier than some of the earlier numbered symphonies, and it's thought that it was very possibly the big symphony on the very first concert that that Haydn gave upon his arrival in London. Uh, one of the most popular pieces by Haydn up to this point was his Symphony Number no. 53, the so-called Imperial Symphony, uh, another great kind of uh, triumphant symphony. And so I think maybe Haydn was trying to channel the excitement and the love for that that piece in this new Symphony Number no. 96. Uh, and uh, it's a, a fabulous piece in the key of D major, a very bright, brilliant key. Uh, it begins with a, a lovely short adagio introduction, first in D major and then kind of turning to the minor, uh, which sets up this fantastic 3-4 uh, uh, first movement, yum, but you hear this kind of 
pervasive figure. Bum, 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 ba, bum, 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 ba. And maybe it's just because we opened our season with uh, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. But I keep, as I've been studying this symphony, I keep coming back to believing that, that Beethoven must have known this piece pretty well. After all, bum, 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 is the same kind of, it, it, it's the same kind of rhythmic figure. Obviously, very different things happen with it. But uh, it's not beyond Beethoven to uh, sort of be influenced by his teacher, Haydn. Uh, Haydn you had this very interesting relationship with Beethoven after this time. Uh, he was sort of his ostensible teacher, although Beethoven was so opinionated and strong-willed that it was probably very hard to teach him at all. In fact, Haydn gave him a nickname. He called him the Große Mogul, the Great Mogul, which I always like because I can imagine swarthy little Beethoven there seeming like a little, a little mogul as he bossed everybody around and went his own way. But I think he had a very productive time studying with Haydn, and I think he learned a great deal from Haydn. And you hear in this symphony, as you do from all these late Haydn symphonies, how much Beethoven must have taken from him and then amplified and expanded and intensified the lessons he learned from Haydn. So uh, a very brilliant first movement. Uh, Interesting, I think, because... You know, when we think about symphonic movements, particularly the outer movements, first movements in particular, uh, we think of them being in sonata form, that sort of three-part form, uh, uh, exposition, development, recapitulation, a big ABA, essentially, uh, where you have a first theme, a second theme, which is usually very contrasting, then this big development, and then the themes come back kind of reconciled at the end of the movement. Haydn, of course, pioneered that idea, essentially, because he's really essentially the father of the modern symphony, and he essentially created the structures that symphonies are based on. But Haydn was not as um, religious about having this contrasting second theme. He very often didn't even have a second theme. He just viewed the two different contrasting sections as based on the keys. You'd start in the tonic, the, the, the home key, and then you'd pivot to the fifth, to the dominant, and that would be the exposition, and then you'd extend that through the development, and in the last part of the movement, everything would resolve and be played in the home key. What's so interesting about this movement, I think, is that there really isn't a second theme or a second set of themes. There's really just an incredible pervasive element of these wonderful kind of military, joyous, uh, triumphant themes along with that and he manages to sustain an entire movement out of that one basic principal idea. The second movement seems to start as a very typical Haydn second movement. It's a charming, light G major. Sounds like it's going to be a set of variations. But uh, here again, to me, a a connection to Beethoven. He gets to kind of a, a midpoint, and then he starts what sounds like a variation, and it becomes this incredibly passionate, dark G minor, and then it pivots into a lot of different, very dark keys. It, it, it reminds me, in a, in a certain way, again, maybe because we were just doing the Eroica, of how the second movement of the Eroica uh, is occupied by these incredibly powerful fugal passages based on, on sort of Baroque fugues a la Bach. Here, Haydn does something very similar, not quite as melodramatic or as extremely dramatic, but he really gets you into this unbelievably contrapuntal, uh, you know, contrapuntal being a lot of different running lines against each other, this very fugal kind of material that's very dark and powerful and kind of overpowering in the way that the middle of Beethoven's Eroica slow movement is. Uh, And then he brings you back to this charming opening idea. And so again, it's kind of a big ABA form. And then there's a, a wonderful moment at the end of the second movement where, uh, 
Mr. Solomon would have been playing first violin in the in the orchestra, and Haydn does this charming thing where there's a little bit of a kind of composed cadenza where solo strings led by Mr. Solomon and the solo instruments all around play a little kind of intermezzo cadenza, and then he brings the movement to a close. Third movement, very charming minuet, and the fourth movement, a very funny, uh, witty movement, typical of Haydn, a sort of rondo form, but in which every time the, the main idea comes back, there's a little extra bar where the violins sort of start the theme, and then a bar later, everybody else starts it. So it's just kind of like this little hiccup in the music, and you you always feel like the, the theme is starting, and then it doesn't quite start, and then it starts a bar later, which I think was probably very funny at the time and continues to be funny. It's like you're, you're a little puzzled as to where the theme actually starts. So a brilliant, beautiful D major symphony by Franz Joseph Haydn, probably the very first of his so-called Solomon symphonies written for the London audience in 1791. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Haydn's Symphony Number no. 96, the so-called Miracle or Miracle Symphony, uh, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on our program, we have a wonderful new work by one of my absolute favorite composers. He's Viet Quang, and if you follow the Albany Symphony at all, you know that we've played a number of his pieces in the last few years. Last season, we did a great double oboe concerto, a very witty and whimsical piece called Extraordinarily Fancy. And a couple of seasons before that, we did a fantastic uh, percussion quartet concerto. Actually, we did it twice. First, we commissioned it for our new music ensemble, Dogs of Desire, and played it on one of our American music festivals. And then it was such a big hit, and I enjoyed it so much that I asked Viet if he'd turn it into a, a work for full orchestra, which he did. So it, uh, we, we played it in two versions, one with the Dogs of Desire and percussion quartet, and then we featured it on our opening concert of the season about three years ago, I think, um, again with percussion quartet, but now with full orchestra. And I'm delighted to say that it's gone on and had a wonderful life uh, and been played a couple of dozen times by orchestras around the country and the world, and it continues to have a a huge life, as do all of Viet's pieces. Uh, Viet is still a very young composer. I think he's only 31 years old. He's a graduate of Princeton University, where he's completed his doctorate and of the Curtis Institute and many other institutions of higher learning. Uh, He's actually just moved to the West Coast because he's a professor, uh, just started a couple weeks ago as a professor at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Uh, And he's just a great, great guy, a a witty, whimsical, extraordinarily gifted composer, very, very skilled. Uh, And this is a piece that he wrote uh, just about a year ago, I think, for uh, the California Symphony, where he had a residency. It's called Next Week's Trees, and that's drawn from a beautiful poem by the lovely nature uh, poet Mary Oliver, a real favorite American poet. Uh, and it, it, it's a, from a poem that has a very, very long title, which I will now read to you. The title of the poem is Walking to Oakhead Pond and Thinking of the Ponds I Will Visit in the Next Days and Weeks. So that says it all, I think. <laughs> the poem is also wonderful, but the title itself is fantastic. It's a, it's a great nature poem, and it's a very optimistic poem. Uh, and I think uh, Viet wrote this piece last, actually he wrote it last spring, uh, at a time when, as he described to me, we were all feeling rather optimistic that maybe this pandemic was going to finally begin to be in our rearview mirror. And it was the first time that he was feeling some hope. And so he wanted to write a, a, a piece kind of about celebrating 
the joy of tomorrow, the unseen tomorrow. Uh, And as he described it, uh, the poem is really about the unknowable nature of of the future, and yet at the same time, our willingness to believe it's going to be good, (laughs) which is maybe not true of all of us at all times, but there is this wonderful sense of human optimism that even though the future, and and this is really the, the idea of her poem, that even though the future is completely unknowable, more unknowable than anything else in our lives, we tend to hope and believe that it will be okay. So it's a very hopeful work, a very joyful piece, even though, like all the pieces on the concert, uh, this happens to, well, I shouldn't say like all, but uh, it is in D minor, like the great concerto that uh, we're going to play on the second half. These are all pieces in D, the Haydn Symphony in D major, this in D minor, but then pivoting to a wonderful, joyous middle section, D major. And then the great Brahms concerto that ends our program, the great D minor piano concerto of Brahms. So a lot of D in this concert. The key is always D. Uh, but this somehow, even though it starts in D minor, it, it is a very joyful piece for string orchestra. Uh, and, and just a little quote from the poem, just so you can hear where the title, Next Week's Trees, comes from. She says, And I'm sure I can see the fields and the ponds shining days ahead. I can see the light spilling like a shower of meteors into next week's trees. And uh, so that's kind of the, the ethos of the piece. It's about seeing the sun rising in the future and illuminating the trees and the woods. Uh, it's a fascinating construction, the way he builds the piece. It begins with uh, strings all playing pizzicato, plucking the strings, not not using their bows for the first, essentially the first entire third of the piece. So for three or four minutes, they just all play pizzicato. It's very vital, vibrant. They build these wonderful melodic uh, structures out of just pizzicato. And then, uh, and the way Viet described that to me was that, you know, he's a great fan of all the great string music of the 19th century, particularly the Tchaikovsky Serenade and that luscious sound that string orchestras make with their bows. And so what he wanted to do was kind of put that off a bit into the piece. So when it actually happens that, that the musicians actually start using their bows, it's a great kind of revelatory change of sound, which I, I think it is in the piece. And then as the piece progresses after the pizzicato opening section, Uh, Then he begins uh, increasingly to introduce a lot of harmonics. Harmonics are when you play very lightly with the bow on the string and you get a kind of whistling overtone that sounds an octave or two octaves above the actual pitch you're playing and you finger it very lightly and there are these wonderful whistling sounds that strings can do. And he does one particularly wonderful effect. I'm not sure you'll be able to hear it on the recording, but on the recording of the performance, but um, where he actually goes from a fingered note, a regular sounding note, and then he sort of shifts to a sudden harmonic and you get this kind of uh, the way he describes it, he says it's it should sound have a crackling timbral change similar to the human voice sliding between chest and head voice. So lots of great kind of modern techniques, but you'll hear the music is extremely, um, dare I say, contemporary music based. All of Viet's music is is wonderfully approachable because I think he's very much immersed in in pop music and in pop culture and manages in much the way that many of my favorite composers like Michael Torkey fuse. Uh, he's able to fuse sort of pop ideas and particularly pop harmonic progressions uh, with the wonderful grand tradition of the past. And so it makes this very fresh, very contemporary sounding 
but always very approachable music. And uh, it's just gorgeous to listen to. I'm always so thrilled. We're excited. We have a big commission, a new work coming from him next year. And we're just going to continue to commission and play his music as long as we can because we love him and think he's great. So here it is. I think only the second performance is ever of Next Week's Trees by Viet Quang. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, the string section of the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Viet Quang's Next Week's Trees, performed by the strings of the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Brahms's first piano concerto is one of my absolute favorite pieces in the whole wide world. And I must say, as much as I love all of Brahms' music, it's one of my absolute favorite pieces by Brahms, of all the music I know of his, of the piano works and the solo piano pieces and the songs and the and the chamber music and, of course, the symphonic works uh, and the choral works. I think it may be my absolute alpha Brahms piece. And I've been puzzling as I was preparing for these concerts why that is, what it is about this specific piece that so attracts me and that's so uh, compelling to me. And I really think that it's because this is the absolute um, apex of Brahms's earliest period. You know, we tend to think of Brahms, and even in our mind's eye, I I know, in fact, because scholars talk about it, they talk about, quote, the bearded Brahms. You know, we when we think of Brahms, we see those great portraits of him, very big, rotund uh, German gentleman with a big beard and the receding hairline and, you know, this kind of wise, old, great man who, who was indeed that in the 19th century, the, the great keeper of the grand tradition of Bach and Beethoven and Haydn and others, uh, as opposed to all those other figures, Liszt and Wagner, who were, you know, sort of crazy futurists pushing music in, in all sorts of new directions. Brahms was the keeper of the grand tradition. And and I do think that there's a, a danger among interpreters to interpret all of Brahms as being by the bearded Brahms. And so I must say, with all due respect to all of my great colleagues and forebears, etc., that of all the composers I know, I think Brahms is the one um, who I feel is most often misinterpreted because so many people luxuriating in the glory, the gorgeous harmonic language and the motific language of Brahms tend to play it very slowly and sometimes very ponderously. Now, that may be because of the way they think it should go. I think it's also kind of inherent in some of the music. You know, Brahms is famous in in all of his music for having thick left-hand chords. You know, he was a wonderful performing concert pianist as a young man. And and when you play any of his solo piano music or any of the piano music, you notice that his left-hand chordal structure, he must have had a mighty left hand, is thicker and more dense than just about any other composer. And so there's a sort of weightiness to Brahms's music that I think just sort of invites people to slow, interpreters to slow down the music and to explore it that way. Also, just because it's so luscious, you want to luxuriate in it. But I must say that this work, even though it's often played that way, I think really wants to be played in a very, very different way. This is a work that Brahms started creating in 1854. So that means he was 21 years old. He was a very, very young man. If you've ever seen pictures of Brahms as a young man, he was a very dashing, handsome young man. No beard, clean-shaven, beautiful hair, great features, dynamic 
not yet rotund, a really lithe, incredibly dynamic figure. I think that's really what Clara Schumann and Robert Schumann saw in him, this great young knight riding in to save music from a, a more challenging future. And, you know, it was Robert Schumann who essentially discovered Brahms at 20 and Clara Schumann, and who it was Robert who declared him kind of the great hope of the future of music. He wrote this very seminal article, Neue Bahnen, uh, declaring Brahms the next great genius of music. And frankly, for a 20-year-old composer who was just barely out of the cradle musically, uh, and not even out of the cradle musically, uh, that may have been actually not a favor to declare him that. And it meant that, that Brahms needed 10 or 20 or 30 years to grow into that prophecy, which in fact he did. But as a young man, he was really a dashing young figure. And his music, I think, was much in the mode of Schumann. It had great abandon, and it had great drama, and it had great, what we call in German, Schwung. It had great power and forward thrust. And uh, and it was only later that it, the music sort of became broader and deeper. And um, and so this piece was the labor of his earliest years. It was something that he sweated over for about, uh, I don't know, somewhere between three and five years. It was the, the magnum opus, his first great symphonic utterance. And it, it cost him a lot of, a lot of anguish. Uh, and uh, it started, as you possibly know, as a possibly a, a two-piano piece, and then he envisioned it as a symphony, and then he had a dream in which he was playing piano and watching the performance, and he realized that, oh no, it should be a piano concerto, and so he got rid of the second and third movements and kept some of the first and built that, and then he consulted with Clara and with Josef Joachim, his great friends, and one has to remember that Brahms started working on and thinking about this piece in 1854, which was a very critical year for him and for the Schumanns, because that was the year when Robert Schumann had his last great breakdown, uh, tried to commit suicide and ended up in an asylum, uh, and never recovered and never left the asylum and kind of descended into pretty complete madness uh, and died two years later in 1856. And that is exactly the time at which Brahms was uh, gestating this piece. At the same time, Clara knew increasingly that this was Robert's last illness and that he was not going to recover. She was not allowed to see him during those two years of his final decline. Uh, she was home with her seven children, raising the children, concertizing, trying to keep the family together, trying to earn a living so that she could pay to keep the family together. She had a lot on her plate. She had a lot going on. At the same time, here was this gorgeous young 21, 22-year-old Brahms who was absolutely in love with her, head over heels, and who was actually very close to Robert. And uh, it was this kind of strange family triangle, also with Joachim uh, Square. Um, and so out of all of this, Brahms's love for Clara, 14 years his senior, and this mature, incredible woman, uh, his tragic sense of his love for Robert, who was his greatest mentor and who was in complete decline. Uh, these are all the things that that created the world of this work. And while none of Brahms' music is specifically autobiographical, he didn't really believe in that, he really wanted his music to be abstract, this is perhaps the most autobiographical piece he ever wrote. It's not that in bar 27, Robert jumps off the bridge, but at the same time, one has to feel that the crisis of Robert's attempted suicide and final uh, illness somehow precipitated the incredible 
just insanity of the first movement of Brahms's piano concerto. And he himself actually inscribed at the beginning of the beautiful uh, introspective slow movement, the second movement, Benedictus qui venit in nomine domine, uh, from the Latin mass, blessed is he who goes in the name of the Lord, uh, as kind of a benediction or a requiem for Robert. And also at one point he referenced that the second movement expressed his love for Clara. And then uh, the third movement is just a great <laughs> dynamic movement, very much influenced by by the model of Beethoven's third piano concerto. But the piece is wrapped up with and all about Robert's love for the Schumanns, the tragedy of Robert, his love for Clara. And it is an incredibly extravagant piece. Uh, he kind of lets everything out. It has so many themes, so much, particularly in the first movement, uh, so much thematic motion. Uh, it begins like no piano concerto ever began before. The, the scope of it, in a way, the scope of it is like the Beethoven Eroica symphony is to symphonies. This concerto is to concerti. The, the scope of the first movement is longer than most concertos of the time. And uh, it was not surprisingly a great puzzlement to the first audiences that heard it, uh, particularly uh, in, in Hannover and then even more so in Leipzig a great music center where the second performances happened, it was met with puzzlement and basically disdain. You know, they were expecting some wonderful, um, some wonderful virtuosic, light, flashy piece a la Chopin, I suppose, or whatever the the pieces of the time were. And uh, instead they got this unbelievably intense, dramatic, three and a half, almost four minute symphonic opening after which the piano comes in in this very delicate lyrical way, they were probably just completely flummoxed. And, and the, the virtuosity of the writing, the, the, the depth and the difficulty of the writing, the sense of struggle throughout, particularly the first movement, but the whole piece must have just absolutely befuddled and flummoxed the audience of the time. In fact, what's kind of funny is that the only people who seem to appreciate the work were Liszt and his circle, because they, they heard, and I think, the whole autobiographical sense, and Brahms and Clara, who were kind of very much against the, the Liszt crowd, were really almost offended by the fact that they seem to really like the piece. Uh, anyway, obviously, as Brahms evolved and developed the piece through his championing it as a soloist and through Clara's championing it as a soloist, it became much more embraced and loved. And as his star ascended in the, in the following years uh, and, and all of his music came to be recognized as some of the greatest music of the age, um, uh, this piece as well uh, became more of a standard repertoire work and it has remained in the repertoire since. But it's not that often played and I think that's partly because the piano part is so catastrophically difficult. It's just, it asks so much of the soloist. And if you want to play it at any kind of dynamic, thrusting tempo, it requires a, the virtuosity of a Horowitz to get through. And so I think for all those reasons, to me, because Brahms later kind of buttons up his passions, in this piece, he lets them all out. And I just think that's so thrilling about this piece. So I tend to take it in a very forward-thrusting manner, much to the terror of all pianists who play it with me. But we're delighted to have a great, great pianist, Shai Wozner, the Israeli-born American pianist, uh, and he does a miraculous job with it. So here it is, Brahms' uh, Piano Concerto Number 1, three movements. The first movement, uh, maestoso, majestic first movement with a gorgeous contrasting second theme, the beautiful, introspective, adagio, possibly requiem second movement, and the dynamic third finale. Uh, here it is, Brahms' Piano Concerto Number 1 in D minor. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, pianist Shai Wozner as soloist, with me, David Allen Miller, conducting the Albany Symphony.
That was the Brahms Piano Concerto Number no. 1, featuring piano soloist Shai Wozner with the Albany Symphony and me, David Allen Miller, conducting. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.